0: Welcome to North Boston, Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loved us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Surely continuing through our sermon series on Acts, post-Lent. Last week we talked about how Philip went to preach to Samaria, and this week we'll be talking a little bit more through Philip's times, preaching, and also Saul's conversion. So if you guys can open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 8, verse 26. We'll be reading from, this is a big chunk today. We'll be reading from Acts 8, 26, all the way through Acts 9, 22. So Acts 8, 26, all the way through 9, 22. This is the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise! And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. But Paul, this is Acts chapter 9 verse 1, but Paul still breathing Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he is seeing a vision, in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. But here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Abba, we come before you, humbly, just as we are. Abba, we live in a generation and in a time where we know not what you are doing, more so than anybody has ever read in history. Our times are confusing as ever. God, we have no idea what is going on, and we have no idea what we should do. For, Father, our times are unprecedented and our spirit and our faith is weak, but our flesh is strong. Jesus, as we hear your word from our homes, as we are not fully able to gather as one body and present body, I pray, God, that you would help us to come to the next level with you. Holy Spirit, we believe in your divine authority and power. Would you fill every room, every space of every single person in this ministry? God, that you would fill every heart with more and more and more of you. God, that whatever we feel we have committed, whatever sins we feel we have committed, whatever weaknesses we feel we inhabit, whatever it may be, our circumstances, our upbringings, God, I pray that we would come before you just as we are, knowing, Jesus, that you have us in the palm of your hand. Holy Spirit, take us to the next level with you. Hide me behind your cross, that it is only you that may be glorified and show us, God, in this time, in this age, what it means to be the body of Christ. For though we do not know, Abba, you know all things. Abba, you are in full control. Abba, you are alive, sitting at the right hand of God. You are alive as our physical bodies are. Jesus, as real as my hands and my feet are, as real as my body is, as real as my present is, So you are at the right hand of God in heaven. Although I inhabit this lowly estate, Jesus, you are lifted high in the heavens, exalted, Father God, for the cross. And so Jesus... We pray that in this, in the midst of this injustice, in the midst of this strife, in the midst of all this disease and confusion, Jesus, that you would be magnified, that you would be glorified, that you would reveal yourself in power and authority and encounter and spirit to each and every heart. That their hearts would burn within them. For Jesus, you are alive. You are alive even now, Holy Spirit. Give every person who hears my prayer right now willingness to encounter you, willingness to explore greater faith with you, Jesus. We believe in you. We ask, oh God, that you would give us more and more revelation. And we humble ourselves. We lower our noses to the ground. We prostrate ourselves before you, knowing, God, that we are limited, but you are not. And we lay down all our presuppositions. We lay down all of our knowledge, knowing God that we are limited, but you are not. Humble us before you, Jesus. We We ask God for guidance and assurance and confirmation and conviction. Holy Spirit, take us to the next level with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Today, we are talking about two different people who got saved. So I just want to remind us about Acts and what Acts was leading up to this point. So up to this point, we have heard that Stephen was martyred. He was executed unfairly after Jesus himself was lynched. The, the Christians are in the midst of... My hair was poking my eyeballs. The... The Christians were in the midst of a lot of injustice and a lot of unjust legal persecution. And in the center, the epicenter of that persecution is a man named Saul of Tarsus. In the midst of the persecution, Jews are Jewish Christians are scattered. And a diaspora Jew named Philip goes to the enemies of Israel, Samaria, and preaches. And many, many people come to Jesus. And at this point, God leads Philip elsewhere. Still in the midst of persecution, and all of Samaria has just come to Christ, magic and witchcraft are all flipped upside down, and misunderstandings of the gospel are also flipped. And then all of a sudden, God tells Philip to go another way. Now this way is interesting. God tells Philip to go to the old, deserted Gaza which was destroyed by Alexander the Great in in 332 B.C. Now, the significance of this is this. Gaza was a huge trade center, a huge city that was completely knocked down multiple times, the most memorable one by Alexander the Great. And when Gaza was completely brought to rubble, the, the city of Gaza moved, And the old Gaza, which was completely knocked down by Alexander the Great, was left in ruins. So that means that there are two Gazas. But Luke here, the author of Acts, specifies that this is a desert place, which means... The Holy Spirit is telling Philip to go to a ruined city, an abandoned ancient city that is no more. It has been 400 years, nearly, since Gaza has been laid to ruins. And Philip is all of a sudden told to go. Now, if you can imagine Philip. At this point, so many people in Samaria are brought to Jesus. Philip is used as this amazing evangelist. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, the Holy Spirit goes, go to the middle of nowhere. Not going to lie. I relate to that. (laughs) Um... I think it happens very often where in the middle of, and and I don't know if any of you guys can also relate, right? Maybe some of you guys were going through a point of spiritual growth and breakthrough. A lot of you guys were being really blessed and strengthened by God. And you guys are going through a season of spiritual prosperity and then all of a sudden Jesus goes, you're going to leave this season now and go into a period of hardship." I relate to Philip on a on a spiritual level because um, at the time that I was told to move to Massachusetts, I was not I was not necessarily in a place where I was doing bad spiritually. At the time I was a spiritual leader in my church back at home. I had just seen my own ministry that God had allowed me to steward for a couple of years literally exponentiate supernaturally. three times just in number. Um, And I was experiencing a time of spiritual prosperity and growth where I was able to see a lot of fruit in what God had called me to do. Um, My obedience had led me to be in a point of fruit and in a point of security in my own life vocationally. And then God said, go to Mass. And not just Mass, Hamilton, Massachusetts. And I remember when I first got to Hamilton, Next to the horses. Um, I mean, I preached a lot about this when I first met you guys, but the reason why I preached a lot about it is because I was in a lot of shock at how much at how much where I was was homogenous and how much it was truly farmland. It was very, very, very shocking. Um, and so in that sense, I was... I really relate to Philip on a spiritual level. I don't know if a lot of you guys would relate to Philip, but at first glance, this sounds a little bit, to some it might be upsetting, to others it might be confusing. Philip goes from this moment where many people come to Jesus and he has to preach in front of the masses to going in the middle of the wilderness. But, unlike some of us, unlike most of us, Philip is obedient and goes. See, the thing about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit doesn't necessarily force you, but the Holy Spirit gives you an option to obey. And Philip takes it, even though it makes no sense for Philip to go from Samaria to the middle of the desert, to a literally abandoned city where nobody lives no more. Philip goes, and he starts on his journey from Samaria to Gaza. On the way, he meets an Ethiopian royal eunuch. The significance of this is crazy because, first of all, Ethiopia. I don't know if you guys know where Ethiopia is, but Ethiopia is right south of Egypt in Northern Africa. So if you understand the the like, ma- I don't know how to. I wish I could. Okay, I'm gonna hope you guys can track with me. All right, this is okay. Let's. This is the Mesopotamian River, all right. If this is the Mesopotamian River, right north of the Mesopotamian body of water is Europe. Right here is Jordan, Israel, and here is Egypt. That's just kind of the the basic breakdown. Okay? I don't know if it's... it's it might not be a river. Um, but yes, the body of water up here is Europe. This is Asia, this is the Middle East, and this is Africa. Now, if this is Africa, Egypt is here, and Ethiopia is here. Northern Africa, Egypt, Egyptians, they're not necessarily lighter skin, but a little bit lighter skin, right? And Ethiopia, it's known, at the time, Ethiopia was called, I think it was called Naba. And it was known that south of Egypt is where the darker skinned people were. That's how people, that's how it has record, right? That the people darker skinned than Egyptians in the continent of Africa were south of Egypt. And they were Ethiopians, they were a Ethiopia is traditionally known as a country that is, number one, hard to reach because of the landscape, the geography of the area, and also very isolated. Why? Ethiopia is actually, there's a big mountain range in the country. Fun fact, Ethiopia is the only, one of two or the only, I think it's one of two other than Sierra Leone, that was not colonized by Europeans. And it was partially because of that mountain range. Nobody was able to be able to get past how difficult the geography was. And that's why Ethiopians have had churches for 2,000 years. Ethiopian, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, fun fact, is one of the oldest churches in the world because their origins start from this moment. And they were undisturbed by colonial forces that inhabited Africa. So that's the context of Ethiopia. Number one, it's really hard to get to because of the mountain range. And number two, they're very isolated people. They're very hard people to get to even for people that are living in this area, around this giant body of water. And not only that, he was no normal Ethiopian, He was a royal eunuch. Now eunuchs are people that are castrated. I don't know if y'all know what being castrated is, but it's when somebody is sterilized. Partially because of their religiosity, or it's because of slavery. And this is a royal eunuch that has risen up the ranks to be an official to the queen of Ethiopia. The queen, the leader of Ethiopia. And what did he manage? Money. I don't know if you guys remember anything about Joseph. But in the story of Joseph towards the end of Genesis, when Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt, the significance of why Joseph is second most powerful to, the, to Pharaoh is because he had access to the money. So the fact that somebody has status to have access to money is critical. But this man had access to money. So he is a very, very powerful, rich man who went to worship in Jerusalem. It's very, very, very rare for an Ethiopian royal eunuch to worship in Jerusalem. Because Ethiopia had their own religion. Not only that, but also eunuchs were not allowed to worship in the temple. So either this eunuch didn't know of that rule in Deuteronomy, In the the law of Moses. So like he's not supposed to be let in. But somehow he was worshipping. And he was coming back from his way. Looks like he purchased the, the book of Isaiah while he was in Jerusalem. And he was back on his way to Ethiopia when Philip runs into him. Very, 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 very unlikely meeting. In the middle of a desert. On the way to a ruined city and the spirit of God comes to Philip and says go up to that man and as Philip goes up to this man in a very 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 almost to none chances encounter Philip sees him reading the book of Isaiah and says what you reading do you understand what you reading Understand that this is a stranger going up to a royal man who is probably covered by his wealth on all ends, probably at a whole party, a whole royal party, this solitary stranger going up to him saying, do you know what you're reading? And what, what does this royal man in a royal chariot say to this stranger evangelist? How can I? unless someone guides me. The original language shows that the eunuch actually has been going through the book of Isaiah for a long time. So it seems as though the eunuch has gotten to a point where he does not understand and he's frustrated. And that's when, right at the perfect time, when the eunuch is most open, God doesn't send the fire, doesn't send the storm, doesn't send the Holy Spirit falling down on his head just by supernaturally reading words that he doesn't understand. But he sends a person named Philip, a servant, to ask, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch throws up his hands and he says, how can I unless someone guides me? So Philip begins, this is a very interesting thing because where the eunuch was at was exactly and i don't know if you guys remember this from when we went through isaiah for six months but this is in isaiah 53. the very passage right at the epicenter of the passage where isaiah foretells jesus explicitly and so philip excitedly and filled by the holy spirit begins to explain from what Isaiah was prophesying all the way through the life of Jesus, the gospel. And then, they come across a body of water. As they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? I want to remind you guys that they are talking in the middle of a desert. <laughs> They're talking in the middle of a desert. It is not only deserted, but it is also a desert. The number one thing to know about a desert is that it has no water. Okay, And yet, while they were talking about Jesus at the right time, they come across an unlikely oasis. He says, why can't I be baptized? And the royal eunuch commands the chariot to stop, and they both go down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptizes him. And when they come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, literally swept him up, and he's gone supernaturally. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Very, very interesting story. Very, very interesting story. And the Spirit of the Lord takes Philip away supernaturally, but the eunuch keeps going rejoicing. We all have something called a God wing in our lives. I want you guys to think of the most unlikely person in your life to become converted to Christianity. Maybe your own story is one where on your own you would not have come to God but God intervened at the right moment. Maybe it was your own personal encounter with God. Maybe it was in the book of the Bible, or maybe it was in a person that God put next to you to show you who he was. But I want you guys to think about when, and even if you guys are like, oh, Jane, I don't know if I'm like, I doubt God a lot, and I don't know when exactly I accepted Jesus. I want you guys to just think about when the gospel became more important to you. When did you return to the Lord? And I want you guys to, through the story of the eunuch, think about your own lives. And really question the odds. What are the odds that you met that person that you read that verse that you went through that experience at that time when your heart was the most open and we see not necessarily from the pers- perspective of the person who was baptized but from the perspective of the person who was serving how the holy spirit used him to bring a royal eunuch to christ a lot of people a lot of theologians mark this point as a point where the gospel reached Ethiopia and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has literally been existing since this time as in they have paraded through the streets of Ethiopia every Easter for 2000 years could Ethiopia have become a christian country if not for the way that god met this eunuch no one will know but though, i'm not really sure if this means that the eunuch was saved like there's no like oh well, i believe in jesus the eunuch just got baptized and then that's it like the eunuch there's no there's no there's nothing in scripture that says necessarily that the eunuch was saved true but there are two markers of the fact that the eunuch was transformed by the gospel. The first is that he was baptized. The word baptized means immersion. By definition, especially in this time, baptism is an outward show of an inward growth of faith. To all of us, baptism and confirmation are very important because they mark the transformation that is going on in our hearts. Not necessarily that we are holy, or that we are perfect, but that God is with us. And not only that, even after Philip was whisked away by God, this is a supernatural move, where Philip literally disappears before the eunuch's eyes, he goes on rejoicing. It shows a heart transformation. I don't know if you guys remember from Abide, our winter retreat. But if God says in John 15, abide in me so that your joy may be full. A true marker of the Holy Spirit and a fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. So the fact that the eunuch went on rejoicing is a sign of the fact that the eunuch had internalized the euangelion or the good news. But this is not the only conversion we read today. We see side by side the conversion of a man an Ethiopian eunuch and Saul. A little bit about Saul is that he was born in Tarsus, in a Roman colony, which means that he was a Roman citizen. His family was upstanding within the Jewish colony and very, very devout. He was born in the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews with the most elite teachers. And he was the epicenter of Jewish persecution of Christians at the time of Stephen's death. In a lot of ways, this persecution can be likened to, honestly, genocide. Think about a country where persecution is high, not just of Christians, but of other people. You think of highly oppressive nations, where people are shot down and killed for their religiosity, their belief, or even their ethnicity. Where they are being systematically killed. You might think of a place like Saudi Arabia. You might be thinking of a place like North Korea. But by that definition, America is not too far off. And at the epicenter of that hatred, that systemic, larger communal hatred, is Saul. And he's on his way to Damascus to capture more Christians in Damascus. On his way to Damascus, he meets God supernaturally. If y'all know what it's like to be blinded, I know some of y'all, I know when I think about the times that I was blinded by light, it's usually like when I'm playing playing something like, I don't know, when somebody throws a Frisbee or throws a volleyball at you, but the sun is like right in your face. So because you're so blinded, you can't see the ball coming at you or you can't see the, right? It's a light that blinds him or when you're driving and the light blinds you so much you can't really see the road. That's why sunglasses are important. Stay safe, y'all. But... When light blinds him, if y'all can imagine these moments, it's that times 1,000 because you have to understand the light blinds him so much and knocks him off his horse. I've been blinded by light before, but I've never been blinded by light to the point where it knocks me off, like you understand, it, it has to take some sort of physical force to knock you off, but that means that this light was so bright, so blinding, and physically, the photons physically pushed him off the horse. And he falls to the ground. And there's a voice. Saul. Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Interesting. is a smart, smart man. And to the question of the voice that came with the light, Saul actually doesn't answer, but he counters with another question. He says, "Who are you, Lord?" When he says the word "Lord," it's not actually an acknowledgement of the fact that Jesus is God, but it's "kurios," which is how you how you address somebody with respect at that time in Greek. So he's just saying, "Who are you?" Reverently, and then Jesus says, "I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting." And then Jesus instructs him to go. When the light fades and the voice is gone, Saul opens his eyes but does not see a thing. The two people that are next to him heard the voice but did not see the light. And yet Saul is blinded. And he is led by the hand into Damascus. One thing that's really interesting about this encounter, first and foremost, I want to draw your attention, not necessarily to Saul, but to the light. In here, we see Jesus' identity as light of God. We've seen that in the beginning of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and then it says later on in verse three, in him was the light of men. We know that one key attribute of God is that Jesus is the light. But not just that he's alive, but that he is alive. Because Jesus is speaking right at Saul. With an audible voice that not just Saul, but the two men next to him can hear. Interestingly, the men next to him do not see Jesus. And because of the fact that they do not see Jesus, after Jesus is gone, not gone, but after the encounter is done, they can still see. But Saul who has seen Christ and the glory of the light can no longer see. Interesting. The one who saw Jesus goes blind. The one who didn't see Jesus is still being able to, has still eyes to see in the world. Saul is led by the hand. He's now blinded and unable to find his way. You have to understand that Saul did not expect this to happen. Saul expected to be able to go to Damascus, talk to the authorities, and capture a heck of a lot of Christians. But what happens to Saul? He becomes blinded by none other than Jesus himself, and is led by the hand into Damascus because he is unable to find his own way. And he finds himself in this predicament, this sad, sad predicament. And he prays for three days without eating or drinking. Left in that darkness, in Damascus, in that blindness for three whole days. I want you guys to think about the fact that it's three days. What other times in scripture does something happen for three days? Jesus is dead for three days. Jonah is left in the belly of a fish for three days. The soul of a Jewish person stays on the body of the Jew after, for three days, even after the body is dead, before the prayer. Three days. The number three often has to do with death. But in the context of Christianity, it also has to do with rebirth. Now Saul is left in blindness by the God that he was persecuting. One really interesting thing to note is Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. When we persecute the body of Christ, it is as though we are persecuting Jesus himself. When we attack the body of Christ, it is as though we attack Jesus himself. But Saul finds himself in this really interesting predicament where he can't do anything. And he can't eat and he can't drink. But all he does is pray. If you were Saul, what would you be praying about? For three whole days. Maybe a lot of guilt, a lot of repentance, confusion, anger, sorrow. He's left in darkness, treacherous darkness after seeing a blinding light unlike he's ever seen for three whole days. Now, while Saul is left in this darkness and possibly wallowing in grief, God brings into the story another man, encounters Ananias in a dream calls Ananias, Ananias, Ananias says, here I am. God says, go to Saul. Ananias says, but God, Saul, we all know who Saul is. God says, I have chosen him as my instrument to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. What's very interesting about God, God gives Ananias the address of where saul is go to a street called straight i live on hanover street that street was straight street okay to the house of judas exactly where saul was and then says there's a man of tarsus and his name is saul and he's going to be praying and i've told him that you're going Ananias could not have gone because Saul killed a lot of Christians. He goes and he lays his hands. Behold, something like scales falls off Saul's eyes. He eats and is strengthened and is now Christian. His name goes from Saul to Paul. I don't know if you guys have seen that 180 transformation in your life. I don't know if you guys know of anybody who might have transformed 180 degrees. I do know There are always those stories in Facebook where like an SS soldier in the army during the time of Nazi Germany embraces a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust or in Minneapolis, not too long ago. All of, or not all of, many of the white Christians in Minneapolis kneeled before the black church in Minneapolis and prayed a prayer of repentance before the black church, kneeled with the white church and prayed for the white church as well. We see these unlikely encounters of God at the epicenter of strife between enemies. A lot of us hear about the riots and the protests of Minneapolis, but I actually have a lot of friends and mentors that are actually at Minneapolis right now, preaching the gospel. And what isn't covered by the media is just as much as there are many protests, there are also revivals happening in Minneapolis right now, like no other. Many, many people coming to Jesus every day. And there's something about this boundary between enemies. Enemies that would never be able to reconcile. That do. I find that at the heart of that reconciliation, there is always God. And it always leads people to be completely transformed. I have that boundary in my own life. Many of you guys might have seen my parents not too long ago. And I've told this story a couple of times, but my mom, who is my best friend, she's currently pissed at me, so she's what she might be watching this sometime this day because she has the link to our website. If you see this, I'm sorry I haven't texted you enough for the past two days. Um, My mom and I are best friends. It's a known fact, we're very close. But earlier on in my life, my mother was the only person that brought me pain She was the one person I wanted to escape from. She was somebody I considered to be my abuser. She was at the epicenter of all my trauma. And when I was hospitalized in a mental mental institution in downtown Manhattan, I blamed her. She always jokingly says that when she got me out of the mental institution after begging the doctors for days, the psychiatrist for days, the psychiatrist looked at her and shook his head and, and said to her, you know, your daughter doesn't like you. And yet, a lot of people ask me, especially from that time, those who knew me from high school, because that was not too long ago, y'all, that was like six, seven years ago, a lot a lot of people ask me. From my high school life, or people who knows who knew me in New York, or knew me uh, from my home church, they always ask me, "What changed? Why are you best friends with your mom?" The reality is, I don't have any other good thing to say. I don't have anything light and fluffy to say. Oh yes, one day I was able to like really love her. Like yeah, I was able to overcome. What really What really happened is not that I became a better person. And it's not that my mom became a completely better person because she and I are still broken. But what really happened is that we we both became Christian and not Sunday Christian, but true Christians. That's why a household that was completely broken and was seen to be textbook violent, you wouldn't even guess That something like that existed between me and my mom. Um, There's something about that boundary. Something about that boundary. Where reconciliation between enemies happen, not because of anything other than the gospel. You would think that the solution is peace that the solution is understanding and compassion, that the solution is unity. But often, the real solution is the gospel. But Jane, I've never encountered Jesus like that. Yes, some of you guys might not have had an encounter like that one. In my own personal life, I know that I know that the way that I've encountered Jesus all across my life has been really crazy. Where God has intervened intervened in very physical ways in my life to change me from the inside out. And that if it weren't for those moments, I wouldn't be who I am before you guys. I probably wouldn't talk to any of you guys if it weren't for the gospel. Because I was that bad a person. And I know that there are crazy stories like that that exist. I would not necessarily consider myself Saul Paul, but I think my mom's transformation is really Saul Paul because my mom went from the most hateful, the most angry, money-mongering money person that I've ever seen to an evangelist on the streets, giving money away to homeless people so that they could believe in Jesus and get a better life. Like she really changed from the inside out because of a man named Jesus. But And so I've seen that in my own personal life. And I don't know if you guys have seen that in yours. I don't know if you guys have encountered that in your own life. And I think, hear me on this. I think that is why God put the eunuch and Saul Paul side by side. And that is why we are covering in our sermon today, both conversions. Because both are filled with the same spirit of God. Both are filled by the same God, Both are orchestrated in a moment of intervention by the same Christ. And regardless of what you think, whether you met Jesus through a book or by a light that smacked you off your seat, Jesus is the same. And it happens in unlikely ways. When a servant obeys God, at the end of that route is always conversion. It's always the gospel. Another counter example, or another counter argument that you guys might be thinking of right now is, Jane, how do you know that this is real? This is a person's experience. It's hard to know whether or not this experience is real. But the life of Saul Paul is uncontested. This man existed and he was real. The historicity of the life of Saul Paul is uncontested. And the man that Paul was when he was Saul, he had nothing to lose and everything to lose to convert to Christianity. If it were not for a crazy moment in his life where God met him, he would not have transformed because he has nothing to gain by becoming a Christian. He went from being at the top of the social strata to the bottom. There was nothing for him, socioeconomically. So there's no motivation, no agenda, no reason to fabricate. And this really was his life. So to your question, did this really happen? I have to ask, why do you doubt? Because your doubt, even, I don't know about your own life, but your doubt about this person's life is unfounded. Logically, it's unfounded. So why do you doubt if this really happened? Is it because you don't know if it can happen in yours? Now, how do we apply these two conversions In the midst of a time of great persecution in the midst of a time of great strife of enemies between and and deep deep animosity between judaism and christianity what can we apply through the examples of saul paul a leader of the jews enemies of God's people and Ethiopia, the most unreached group that can possibly be in that area at the time. What can we learn? One thing that we can learn for sure is that God has a plan for your life. Point blank. God has a plan for your life, beyond your context and beyond your expectations. If you are willing, God has a plan. If you are not willing to do that plan, you will not be able to hear it. If I do not want to hear what Austin says to me, I will not hear it. Do not blame God for your inability to hear Him. Do not put that on the power of God. It is the power of your will that stops you from hearing God. The second thing that we can apply, other than the fact that God has a plan for your life beyond your context, is that God encounters you and changes you forever. And I wanna focus in on the fact that Jesus goes beyond your expectations and beyond your context. I wanna bring you to the examples of faith in scripture that have been talked about in Acts time and time again. Abraham was 70 when God said, I'm going to bless you through your seed. His wife had gone through menopause he was old y'all know your grandparents that old all right we don't imagine grandparents giving birth but at the point where they had no children at the age of 70 to 80 god says i'm going to give you a son beyond your context and beyond your expectations Saul really thought he knew God. He really thought he was being faithful to the God he knew. He had a context and he had an expectation of his life that he was going to be the savior of the Jews by extinguishing all the Christians. He was loyal to his cause. He was a smart man and he was devout and he had power. The Ethiopian eunuch was also Jewish, powerful. The right hand of the queen of Ethiopia. And yet, God, there is something about God that goes beyond our wildest imagination. How do you limit God in your own life? God, but I don't think this can happen for me. God, I want to be at this point with you. I don't think it can happen. Realistically, I'm looking at my circumstances. I'm looking at my experiences. I'm looking at everything that I've seen, but I don't, and I don't think... Sure, you might have done that for Saul. Maybe you might have done that for Paul. You might have done that for Abraham. You might have done that for Isaac and Jacob. You might have done that for Joseph, from slave to prime minister. And you might have even done that for other people like Jane. But I don't think that you will do that for me because I've never seen you like that. So it's hard for me to believe. That's fair. That's valid. If you've never seen it, it's valid. It's hard for you to believe in something you haven't seen. But don't limit God. To your experience. I'm telling you right now, all throughout scripture, we read about a God that goes beyond what we can believe. Is there a place in your life that is so marked by unbelief that you are unable to let God in? God, I know you can touch me here, here, but I know that nothing is going to change here. God, I have no hope about this place in my life. God, I'm too covered by fear. I cannot change this part of my life. God, I want to believe that you can encounter me the way you've encountered other people in our ministry, but it's just hard for me because I don't feel like you're there, and I can't hear you no matter how hard I try. Don't limit God to your expectations and your experience and your understanding. We read about a God through that 2,000 pages over the course of four thousand. 6,000 years who have met people past their expectation but what they had was faith when God confronts you in a moment and that moment is not just supernatural it's not just an in your oh experience he uses the bible he uses God's people to speak directly at you God is also a God of the physical realm And when you feel God knocking at the door of your heart, when you feel God moving in you, when you read about these conversions, you're like, where am I in all of this? Can I really meet God in an intimate and personal way? Oh, but God, this is just my limit. This is the limit to my faith. My question for you is this. How are you limiting God? Because God is not limited. And you have no idea what God might be trying to do in your life. Church, we have to wake up. If there's not a time in your life where you've got to wake up, it's a freaking global pandemic, y'all. What about your life right now do you have control over? We can't even control the fact of whether or not we can meet, no matter how hard we want to. My question for you is, How are you limiting God? How is God real in your life? Are you believing in him right now? Or are you not letting him into that space? I want to challenge you to get to that next level of faith with God. Dare to believe that God is who he says he is in his word. The faith of a eunuch through reading and interpreting the scriptures. That was it. He read the book of Isaiah and got baptized. That was it, y'all. And through him, an entire nation came to believe in Jesus, to become the oldest church existing for 2,000 years. So who are you to limit God in your own life? I believe, I believe that this is the message, the entire message of my time at Gordon at, at Gordon Conwell, but also at North Boston. I believe for however many years I will be here as your pastor, I came here to tell you not to limit God to your circumstances. Not to limit God to your knowledge, to what you believe can be true or not, to what you believe can be real or not. We read about a God, dare, dare to believe. Would you dare to believe with me? Even if it's scary, even if it makes no sense, even if it's not rational, would you dare to believe that Jesus has a plan for your life? It does not matter if it's in a heavenly encounter or if it's in an interpretation of Isaiah. Don't underestimate the intervention of God in your life right now. Don't underestimate. What are the chances that you were born here of all places in the world, to your family, to this church, to be at this moment? Did you do that? I don't think so. It is the spirit of God that moves both in personal encounter and in communal intervention, in intervention through his word to move us to him. Because God loves you and he will use any opportunity he has to speak to you. Even if you question him, if you don't believe, God will speak right at you because he loves you, because he made you, because whether or not you're willing to admit it, your life, your body is his. And it is not in your control whether or not you live to see the next day. It is up to God. It's not up to your parents. It's up to God. when he meets you there is nothing in life that won't change from enemies to brothers from persecutors to servants there is nothing that God can't help can't do i came here to tell you that there is nothing that God can't do is there a brokenness in your life that you feel like God can't change Is there something in your life right now that you feel like God can't change? Be it your circumstances, a broken relationship. Maybe your hopes and dreams were dashed. Maybe you don't believe in yourself. Maybe it's about your relationship with God. Maybe it's about your relationship with your family. Maybe you're stuck in hopelessness. Or maybe you're stuck in your disbelief. God, I'm not sure. I came here to tell you, there is nothing our God cannot do. He will use every situation from the times of current events all around the world to your own situation. So that you can be reconciled to him. Not just as a body of believers, but personally, personally. God has a tailored plan for you. Will you take it, though? Y'all, my mama's change was, uh, it wasn't necessarily overnight, but it really was overnight. And my change, it took a lot of time to be changed completely, but my initial change was overnight. And I have to tell you, don't limit God. Don't limit God. He is greater than you, and I mean that. He is greater than you in the physical sense. He is greater than you in the spiritual sense. He is greater than you intellectually and right here. And he's real. I came here to tell you. Past your shelteredness, your circumstances, your hopes and your dreams, God is real. Regardless of what sins, what blocks, what sufferings you might have in your heart right now. God is real. And in the midst of a point of injustice, in the midst of a point of deep persecution, he calls us to believe in him. Would you take some time to pray with me? What is God doing in your life right now? What are you feeling in your own heart right now? From wherever you are listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.